a podcaster always pays their debts. And we're paying ours today with part two of Game of Thrones. Are you done burping now? Let me make sure they're all out. Okay, I think they're out for now. For all of you listeners, we just took a little bathroom break, and now we're back to talk about the impact of Game of Thrones. Well, I didn't go to the bathroom. I just got some more water. So I'll probably have to take a bathroom break later. (laughs) So this show had a big impact, and now we're going to talk about it. Where do you want to start with this? So the thing that originally came to mind whenever... I was considering the impact of Game of Thrones was just the scope, was just how big it was and how it changed the scope of all of television, really. I think, uh, I can't think of another show that has really changed the perception of what television could be as much as Game of Thrones has. Do you agree? I definitely agree with that. I mean, in terms of cinematic quality alone, I think Game of Thrones is so clearly on another level from anything that came before it. Shows came close maybe in some aspects, but Game of Thrones, I think, hit... Like, the production value was just so high in, like, every single aspect of the show. The look, the acting, the sound, like everything about it even the episode length it pushed the Mm -hmm. boundaries of like how long a tv episode could be so yeah yeah absolutely and part of the reason that it was able to do that was because it had a really big budget of course (laughs) the budget for the first five seasons of the show was estimated at around 50 to 60 million dollars or because there were 10 episodes in each season about five to six million dollars per episode for seasons six and seven the budget was increased to about 10 million per episode Uh, the budget rose to about 15 million for season eight that sounds like a whole lot of money sure and that does make game of thrones the most expensive series on television for the majority of its run but i was thinking about it this is a show that had a huge cast and Mm -hmm. by like season five six some of these cast members were making a half million dollars an episode so you had to increase that budget in order to just pay your cast (laughs) and so really (laughs) like for the production quality you're you know probably only spending i want to say you know three four million of that per episode budget on the filming of the episode itself Mm -hmm. Uh, i mean i don't know all of the budgetary stuff as i have said many times on the show a lot of that is kind of murky and these are reported figures so there you know could be things that we don't know about going on but still like it's it's kind of nuts to me that the show is able to look as good as it did to shoot in the locations that it did to have as many extras wearing these super elaborate costumes to have the kind of effects these special effects created that didn't look cheap you know that look flawless really and you know they look flawless by today's standards they'll probably look super dated in 
20, 30 years, but like it, it is kind of amazing to me that they were able to do as much as they did for as little as it cost, even though it was the most expensive show on TV for most of its run. Toward the end of its run, Apple TV Plus debuted um, The Morning Show and C, which both cost an estimated $15 million per episode. Disney Plus started launching its Marvel shows about a year or so, maybe two years, after Game of Thrones wrapped. So you had WandaVision, Loki, The Falcon and the Winter Soldier, all of which had estimated budgets of around $25 million per episode. That is insane. I I know, right? (laughs) Like, there are indie movies that don't even film for as much as a single episode of a lot of television shows that are on the air today. And even looking back in history, Friends had a $10 million budget per episode in its last few seasons because each of the titular friends were making a million dollars per episode. So 15 million for Game of Thrones honestly doesn't seem like that much in comparison, but they just did so much more with it. I think that's amazing. Yeah, and I know I'm I'm jumping around a little bit in stuff we want to mention, but I think a lot of that like okay, so you look on paper at all of the different locations that they shot in and you think wow, it must have cost so much money for them to shoot all over the world. But mm-hmm. I think that they were very smart in at least in what I was reading in picking locations where they were able to receive tax breaks mm-hmm. or like countries whose economies are just not that big, you know? Right. So I think that they were able to shoot in the one that springs to mind, which is just they shot some stuff in Ireland. And I guess Ireland has like insane tax breaks for films that shoot there. So I don't know. I mean, that's a whole other thing that the show did, which is just expand the scope of where a show could be shot or how many places a show could be shot. But I think that that ended up saving them money or was maybe one of the ways that they were very smart about using their money to push the production quality. Yeah. And I mean, it makes sense for these countries to offer those kind of tax incentives if it really is going to be a huge draw for them to have let the show film in the country. I was looking into this and it is crazy the amount of tourism that Game of Thrones has generated for some of these locations where it filmed. The show filmed in the UK Canada, Croatia, Iceland, Malta, Morocco, Spain. Um, In the UK, they film specifically in Northern Ireland. So on the island of Ireland, but within the country of United Kingdom. But all of those places saw huge bumps in tourism just because people are flocking to see the places where these shows or these episodes filmed. In 2014, the US ambassador to Spain claimed that HBO's decision to shoot some season five scenes there had boosted local tourism by 15% just two weeks into filming. So just the mere word that the show was (laughs) going to film there was enough to make people to boost the tourism by 15% of people going there to try to see something try to get on the show as an extra. I don't know. But Also, um, Dubrovnik, Croatia in 2015 was a huge site for Game of Thrones filming. I think that is where they film one of the most famous scenes from the show, which is um, Cersei being stripped naked and paraded through Mm. the street. 
The mayor of Dubrovnik, Croatia, told Bloomberg, not Michael Bloomberg, the <laughs> mayor from New York, but he, the, the publishing publication entity. The mayor told Bloomberg that Game of Thrones had driven about half of the city's 10% annual growth in tourism. So it was already on a little bit of a boom, but Game of Thrones pushed that over the edge. And, and in fact, Dubrovnik has been so overwhelmed by tourists that UNESCO warned that the old town, which is where they filmed that scene with Cersei, that it can't handle the number of people who flock to it every day. These tourists are in danger of destroying it because they are going there in such droves. It may have died down a little bit since then because that was, you know, a couple of years ago that the show was really at its peak, but still, like, there are definitely people who are going to Croatia just to see that stuff. Nuts. Also, and this kind of ties into what you said a little bit earlier of why the countries would give such a big tax break to things that want to film there. In 2014, The Guardian reported that the show's first four seasons had a direct economic impact of 82 million pounds for Northern Ireland's economy. That's about 107 million US dollars. And on top of just the tourism stuff, that also includes things like wages for cast members and extras who were local to the area where they were shooting, and hotel, hotel stays for the stars and the crew. But there was also a report from 2018 saying that the show contributed about 30 million pounds per year just to Northern Ireland's tourism sector. And a lot of these locations even offer Game of Thrones tours, where, you know, they will take people on set, you know, on the set, if you will, uh, of where they film these things. One of those tours in Belfast, Northern Ireland, claims to have about 30,000 bookings a year. This like, is so that's, insane. It is insane. Like, <laughs> I, I think it is cool to go and see things in real life that I have seen on television, but I'm not, like, gonna plan a Game of Thrones vacation. <laughs> I'm sorry. Like, <laughs> even for the shows that I love the most in this world, I would not specifically plan a trip to go see the places where it was filmed. I, I can't even imagine myself doing that. And I love to travel. Like, I will go anywhere, <laughs> pretty much anywhere for any reason. <laughs> but just because something was on TV is not <laughs> one of the reasons. It's kind of interesting, too, that we have this insight into how much revenue it is creating for all of these locations but I don't know if you felt this way but like I kept looking into like so okay the show's so popular how much money did Game of Thrones make for HBO and I feel like it's impossible to like find an answer to that question yeah I think it it's is. just ha it's hard to tell I did read some speculation like I was specifically thinking about all of the Game of Thrones merchandise that's come mm. about because of the show and typically with merchandise only 5% of that money will ever make it back to the studio or whatever so like obviously mm -hmm. the show that's not the main way that shows are making money and I think a lot of it comes from like selling the content to like other countries I guess right. or like you know but it's just kind of frustrating because I don't know one thing that I know we wanted to talk about is like you know we're talking about all of the ways in which the show has like pushed production with like the budget and the effects and all of this and like now TV truly is playing on the same game like playing on the same level I guess as film and movies but it's very easy to see movies making money but it's like a lot harder to know if these tv studios are even getting a return on their investment you know as these budgets keep going up 
I don't know. Like, do you think that they are making money? Do you think that budgets are just going to keep rising? Uh, that's a really good point, I think. It's kind of murkier with TV because you have, you know, these streaming services that people are paying, you know, by the month for instead of just going to the movie theater and paying their, you know, $5 on Tuesdays to get in. <laughs> it's much easier to tell who is paying for what, I guess, with movies as opposed to television. Because, you know, unless you're doing an extensive amount of market research and asking each person, you know, why they are subscribing to a, a streaming service or a you know premium cable channel, then you don't always exactly know why they are paying for it. Maybe they don't even know they are paying for it if it's part of a bundle. Yeah. So it's, <laughs> you know, it is harder to justify, I think, renewing or greenlighting very expensive TV shows because they don't always know exactly how it's going to pan out and don't always know exactly, you know, how much money they will make off of it. Because to a certain point, once you have viewers subscribing to your service for a particular show, you have to just keep growing the fan mm -hmm. base. It's like those people are going to keep their subscriptions, which is great. You'll have the same amount of money you had before. But if you want to get more money, <laughs> you need to <laughs> either introduce some new shows that other people will subscribe for or grow the fan bases of the ones that you had. So I don't know. I, I don't know if um, there's an end in sight anytime soon about how much these content creators are willing to pay. I think this is a good time to throw in a little tidbit about a new show being developed at Amazon about a little story called The Lord of the Rings. <laughs> Maybe you've heard of it, but Amazon has produced a first... Well, I think they've now produced... Um, the first season of the show that they are planning about the Lord of the Rings. It's not a, like, retelling of any existing stories. It's a story that exists within the world of Lord of the Rings, I guess. Mm -hmm. But the first season alone easily surpassed anything else that has ever been on television in terms of cost. The estimated total for the first season is $465 million. And on top of that, they paid... $250 million just for the rights to oh Lord of the Rings, just for the source material. And it's not even, like I said, a direct interpretation of right. stories that actually exist. This is just the rights to the characters and the settings and all of that. And they've already guaranteed this show for five seasons, which will presumably make it the first billion dollar television show after just its second season. I just don't, how can you guarantee five seasons before it's even out at all? I, I guess if you are willing to take that big of a risk on it being a failure and you don't <laughs> care, I mean, I how many millions of dollars does Jeff Bezos have lying around? That's true. Maybe I he mean, just really loves Lord of the Rings. Yeah, maybe he's like, I could wipe my butt with this million dollars, or I could green light two <laughs> seasons of this Lord of the Rings show. Hmm. I bet people would pay more for the Lord of the Rings. And I think he's right. <laughs> I think he's right, too. Although I do think a lot of people would like to see him in a compromising position. I, like I bet a lot of people would that. like to get that, you know, that toilet paper that he did wipe his butt on and then smear it on his face. Yeah. We can take that idea. out of this episode if that's too <laughs> vulgar for our audience. <laughs> well, I just think it's interesting because so I was thinking a lot about like the TV landscape since Game of Thrones. And I, you know, it hasn't been that long since the show stopped airing, but there hasn't been 
another show like it to I mean there's the Marvel stuff but I I haven't watched any of that and I don't respect Marvel so we're leaving (laughs) that out of the equation but you know we haven't really it's not like every network is now creating like a Game of Thrones ripoff and like this Amazon thing is going to be within that genre but I do think that there is going to continue to be a push for this high quality cinematic content especially you know this past year and a half has been really hard on the movies and like the movies were already in like a decline so I think we will see TV continue to kind of make up for that lack of like box office film movie entertainment like I think that that expensive cinematic content will continue to exist but I don't ever think that like everything will be like that like I think that that's not realistic because you just like financially and just from a production standpoint that's not possible so I think that how I kind of envision no one asked me this but I'm just gonna say it anyway (laughs) how I envision the future of TV is like so we have all of these streamers and we have as we've discussed many times over in the past just a giant ocean filled with mediocre content (laughs) that gets pumped out really quickly to keep people invested in subscribing to these sites there's always something new to watch, but it's never really that great. And then, you know, once every couple years, these streaming sites will come out with like a super high quality cinematic masterpiece, maybe not masterpiece, but something that is super high budget and eye candy and like movie like. And then you're kind of drawing in two different audiences, right? Like you're drawing in the people that just want to watch crappy TV and you're drawing in people who do want to see something a little better. And hopefully you're keeping both around by just sort of releasing enough content that people continue to pay for your streaming service. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I think I I don't think that we've gotten to the peak of where TV is willing to go uh, budget wise, but I think there is a limit. I, I don't know what that limit will be, and it, we might not get to it for a long time, but as the line between film and television continues to blur, I think that all of these streaming services will continue to push it until they get to that point where it is obvious that they are that it is not paying off for them, that they are not right. getting anything back from trying to push further and further. And it will be interesting to me then to see how they correct that because audiences are going to continue to expect a certain level of quality in television. It's not like one show is going to be a massive failure and everyone is going to be like, oh, well, we'll never have another, you know, Game of Thrones again. It's like, now we've had one, we want more. You know, there have been other shows that I think kind of tried to style themselves as possibly being a successor to Game of Thrones, but the quality wasn't there or they were, you know, just marketed really poorly or they were on a service that no one is watching yet or things like that Mm -hmm. you know the industry always does kind of self-correct in a way but it will be i'm eager to find out how long it takes for this certain phenomenon i guess (laughs) to self-correct within the industry Um, because so much is different right now and i think a lot of streamers uh, and traditional studios too are just trying to figure out what works in a post-covid world and in a streaming dominated world it's it's really interesting to see what the intersection of those two things has done to the media landscape and will continue to do to it for years to come i don't know it's just it's fascinating 
It is fascinating. Maybe only to us, but... <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I just want to super briefly mention something I discovered in researching the show. It It's like a four possible futures for the like future of t- the TV industry in the year 2030. It was like the study done by Deloitte. They had little like two minute videos of like four different ways that they saw the industry could potentially go between now and 2030. And I might just like find a way to link that on our Instagram at Televisionary Podcast. But I thought that it was a really, really cool, just quick way to look at all of these different possibilities for what the future of TV looks like. And all of them are enticing in some way. So yeah, I'm super excited to see how everything changes. Yeah, me too. So this is kind of a hard segue from what we were talking about, but I think another way in which the show really pushed boundaries is in the sheer amount of violence that it introduced. I think that the show has more sexual violence than any other show I've ever seen, ever. And there's also just normal violence on top of that, and just nudity for the sake of nudity. And there has been a lot that people have had to say about this, and how it could potentially be very problematic. I mean, some of it seems harmless to me, having naked prostitutes in the background of a scene where people are just essentially like explaining things that are happening. Fine, whatever. Like that's going to keep people's eyes on the TV screen. But it really did feel to me like the show hit a point where the violence that was happening, specifically the sexual violence, was happening for kind of no reason. Mm-hmm. I think it it just felt gratuitous as the series progressed and it felt problematic to me specifically surrounding like the female characters of the show i think that it was used as a device to maybe like complicate these characters or it just feels like it was violence for the sake of violence and it kind of reminds me of what i was saying earlier which is that you know sure, this kind of stuff that maybe has never been seen to this degree on TV before gets people to watch just because it's shocking. But like, is that even like a good thing? I mean, it's definitely not a good thing. I think in this case, (laughs) I share so many of the same feelings about this that you do, I think. I, I remember specifically the thing that made me stop watching the show the first time is when King Joffrey had two prostitutes in his bedchamber, and he forced one of them to penetrate the other one with, like, the, uh, I call it a quadrident, like a trident, but with four, like, spikes. It was a long scene, too. I, and I just watched it, and I was like, it made my stomach turn. And I just thought, how could anybody in the world possibly be enjoying this show? Like, I just stopped watching the show at that point. Like, I could not make it past that scene. I was like, it's not worth the psychological duress that I am under watching these horrible things happen to people. Like, I don't need you to show me that Joffrey is forcing prostitutes to do that kind of stuff for me to know that he's a bad guy, for me to not like him. There are plenty of other things that he has done to make me not like him and i just wonder why they felt the need to 
portray so much of that kind of stuff. Like, going along with what you said, there is, you know, a certain shock factor that will get people to watch. And some of it, I think, is them just trying to outdo themselves, trying to, you know, see how far they can push. But there's no point in finding out where that line is. Because if you do find out where the line is, then you've alienated enough people that you're not going to have an audience left. And, like, sure, there is a huge amount of sexual violence that happens in our real lives. Sure. Mm -hmm. But, like, you know, I I think of... We don't have to get into specifics, but, like, the show, like, illustrating all of this stuff, it's not helping anything. Like, we all know bad things happen. Like, showing us these bad things, what are you doing? Like, what is it proving what is it changing like it's not changing our view of the character we already know at that point and also that scene you're talking about i'm 99 sure was not in the books so that really? was a scene yes because the character ross the girl with the red hair wasn't even in the books huh. or like she was in the books but her character died really early and so they extended her character in the series so like it was only there for question mark so that we can know for sure Joffrey sucks because at that point we already knew that Mm -hmm. and I think that that's where the show fails for me because I think that the show does have a lot of female characters who are great who do break new ground especially within the fantasy genre like Arya Daenerys Brienne even like Cersei I think like they are strong female characters but then always having this sexual violence like almost all of those characters all of those characters encounter sexual violence in some way whether it actually happens to them or not Daenerys is raped by her husband the first night they're married like Brienne is almost raped but then saved by Jamie Cersei is raped by Jamie it's just something that happens all of the time in TV and feels really, especially with this show, feels really problematic to me because it doesn't feel like it's always serving a purpose. And I know I looked up today out of all of the writers for the show, four of the 73 episodes were written by primarily by a woman. Only wow. four of 73. And there were only two women who wrote for the show at all according to IMDb. I'm not saying that there weren't more, but that was where I checked and there were only two women credited hmm. on IMD, IMDb. So why do these men <laughs> like feel like they're doing this? And you found some great articles that you sent to me. And I liked that one of the people writing about the sexual violence in the show mentioned that a lot of the time rape is used as a way to make a difficult woman more sympathetic. And I just like got goosebumps as I said that, because if we take a step back from that, how messed up is it that that is what we quote unquote need to do to make a difficult woman likable is mm-hmm. to punish her? It's messed up. And so like, sure, I going back to George R.R. R. Martin's initial reason for writing the series of you know, creating a fantasy world that actually shows the world as it was for the, like, medieval times. Violence was always used, especially against women, in war. But to just take it to the level that they did seems so problematic and seems almost, like, counterproductive to pushing these really strong women 
forward. Absolutely. That was a lot. I talked for a long time, but... No, I mean, you said a lot of things that I had wanted to say, and I thought of so many things while you were talking that I wish I had started writing them down because I wanted to (laughs) build on them. But one thing going along with, like, George R.R. Martin creating this, you know, fantasy world that was actually inspired by medieval times, at the end of the day, it's still a fantasy. So you don't have to follow any rules. You didn't have to put things in your story about women being raped. You can create a society where women aren't raped and they are just cool. They are just awesome (laughs) women who do awesome things and they don't have to be likable. And if you do want them to be likable, they don't have to be raped for you to like them, for you to feel any sympathy for them. They can just be characters. And in a way, I think that the female characters are the best characters on the show. They're the ones that I cared about the most. And it's not because they were raped, it's because of all of their amazing qualities, for better or worse. It's because they were interesting, complex characters who happened to be in charge of things a lot, who happen to get things done. That's what I want in a character. I don't want them to be, you know, at the whims, at the mercy of some more powerful man. I don't want to have to see them go through these awful things in order for me to feel something for them, because I already do feel something for them, because they are human. And I think the point that you make about the male writers is so important, because... I guarantee you we wouldn't have gotten as much of that stuff if they had had female writers. There's no possible yep. way that more women in the room would not have solved that. And maybe not even solved it, but made it better, at least. Yeah. And it just, it blows my mind that despite the many loud objections to all of this problematic content on the show, Game of Thrones is still unquestionably one of the most successful TV series of all time. So what does it say about our society that audience of the world audiences around the world are not only willing to tolerate that kind of content, but that they seem to enjoy it and want more of it? It's troubling to me that we could want that in our world. And uh, I'm not saying that everyone who enjoys Game of Thrones also wants to see more rape, but the fact that There are not more people speaking up about the fact that the show has probably normalized rape by showing so much of it Mm -hmm. is disturbing to me. You know, I think back to our, the episode we did about House of Cards, thinking about, you know, the, I asked a question of whether seeing a degradation of the American government on TV led to some people storming the Capitol to try to take the government back. Does seeing rape on a show like Game of Thrones make people think that it's more okay or that it is acceptable in today's world? I certainly hope not. And I think that we have made so much progress with, you know, sexual consent in our world, but obviously not enough if we are still willingly showing stuff like this on TV and people continue to want more of it. I feel like I've said so much about like similar things before on our podcast already like just people want to see what they haven't seen before or maybe you know people enjoy watching these terrible things because in a way it makes them feel better about the reality that they are living in Mm -hmm. and I don't want to like go down those roads too much because I I think I've I've said it before and I don't need to say it again but I will say personally the past year and a half has been 
while very good creatively, has been really difficult in other ways. Like, going out and interacting in the world now is very hard, especially right now. I'm getting, like, really emotional, and I hope that I don't cry. <laughs> but, um, no, it's just... It's It's been really tough lately. We're recording this as there's been a lot of surges in the Delta variant of COVID. We don't want to talk about COVID too much on this podcast, but it's just the amount of stress right now is high with me. And I will say that I personally, and this is completely anecdotal, but as I've started to feel the stress, so like right around the start of COVID, before that, I had listened to so much true crime podcasts. Like, I was so into true crime. And I just stopped. Like, it just wasn't settling well with me anymore, maybe as our world got more difficult. And I, over the course of the past year, the content that I have been drawn toward, like, I've gotten so into reality TV. And I think a part of that is because it is just not showing me terrible things like I mean reality TV is terrible in its own way but it's like light-hearted you know and even the shows that I've watched that have really resonated with me like I loved hacks on HBO and that's because that show is like wholesome <laughs> like in a, maybe wholesome's the wrong word but it's not terrible and like I I don't think I'm alone like I know that my the content creators that I follow are like very into TV so like that's part of it but the shows I see people getting really into are smaller stories are like lighter stories like I I think that there are people out there who are ready to not have to watch this stuff anymore like I I don't even want to watch The Handmaid's Tale anymore. Like, I just can't do it. It's just too much at this point for me personally. I don't know if you feel similarly or if I made that too personal, but like, that's essentially where I kind of came down on this last point that we were talking about. Yeah, I mean, I think that is a good point. So many people are feeling that way that they don't, like, they don't need more negative stuff in front of them all day long because there is enough of that just going on in the world around them so it they don't need escapism that shows a world that is worse than the world they live in obviously they want a world that is better so i think we have seen a little more of that brighter more optimistic content coming out recently i we're still in the throes of covid which again said we didn't want to talk about here but uh, it's worth mentioning here that a lot of shows that might have been inspired by this change in direction have probably just not come out yet so to feel the full mm -hmm. effects of anything that was written and produced during covid or as a result of covid is you know probably still a year or so down the pipeline but uh, i'm kind of happy for that i'm happy for the things to come because i do feel like we're not going to see as much darkness on, you know, in TV or film, I feel like we might see even a little bit of a creative renaissance because of it, where people are challenging themselves to find new stories and find ways to not just shock people, but just entertain people based on the story itself and mm -hmm. not trying to make the biggest, baddest, bestest TV show that they can but just making something that people can identify with and that makes people not feel as bleak about their own lives, that gives people some sort of hope and optimism. I, I hope that will be the case anyway. No guarantee that 
Hollywood won't continue to be a, a cesspool of debauchery and violence and awful things happening to people. On screen or off screen? Uh, both. <laughs> <laughs> I was primarily referring to on screen, but uh, definitely both would apply. But I, I think that we could be turning a corner and it's not necessarily because of Game of Thrones, but Game of Thrones is the obvious example of what we would be turning the corner away from. Yeah. Well said. Well, thanks. I was just going to say, too, if anyone is interested in finding out more of the things that have been written about Game of Thrones and sexual violence, there are a ton of articles out there, not just sexual violence specifically, but of the ways that violence has been portrayed on television throughout Game of Thrones and after it on other copycat shows and stuff like that. So if that is something that is of interest to you, there are you know plenty of articles out there that you can just Google Game of Thrones violence and find some of them, yeah. you know, just like think pieces in magazines, but some of them scholarly articles that have actually studied the show and the impact that it might be having on the world around us. So definitely worth checking out if that is of interest to you. And honestly, I think it should be. I agree. I actually think I'm going to try to find a way to take a lot of the things that we found in researching this episode and like present them to our listeners, because I think that more so than some of our other episodes, like there's a lot of really, really like high quality, nice writing done about this show, which is yeah. surprising for a show that is as recent as it is. Right. But um, that just shows how big of an impact the show has had. I think that, true. you know, so many people have kind of dissected it and looked at what it has done in our society. So it truly is televisionary, for better or worse. Well, I think that's about it. I think it is. <laughs> I have not gotten any better at ending these episodes. Uh, you know what? I feel like our endings usually have a certain charm to them. Either we find a way so. to like tie it into some weird obscure thing that we said earlier in the episode, <laughs> or we just kind of, you know, let it die and <laughs> move on with our lives. <laughs> oh, well. So. I will. Okay. I just have one quick thing to say. Sure. I, my favorite Game of Thrones book, I can't remember which number it is, but it focuses on the Greyjoys of the Iron Islands. Mm. And it is my favorite, and some other people that aren't really relevant either, but it's my favorite book. And then it's like literally completely left out of the series. Hmm. Like there's very, very small portions of it that were included and it makes me sad because some of my favorite characters are just turned into something very strange in the show so that's really sad i didn't know that they were a bigger part of the books i remember mm -hmm. you know certain things about the Greyjoys on the show but they were not like major characters the biggest no, thing that do... happened to any of them was that theon was the subject of surprise terrible violence <laughs> Yeah, I liked, I felt bad for him in the end, even though he was problematic. Yeah. But anyway, thank you all for listening. Yeah, thank you for sticking it out with us once again. I don't know how long this episode will be once it's edited, but we were recording it for a pretty long time. So, but we had a lot to say. I think we covered we a lot of ground a lot. and hopefully you enjoyed listening to it. And hopefully you'll tune in next time when we have a show that... 
It should be a much more lighthearted conversation. <laughs> we aren't going to tell yeah. you what it is yet, but definitely seems like a show that we can have a few more laughs and some sort of relaxed, casual chit-chat about. Yes. I've been Cody Hoffman. <laughs> I've been Elena Hillard. And, and this has been Televisionary. Correct. Now, now goodbye. goodbye. Thanks for listening to Televisionary. If you like what you heard, share this episode with a friend. You can follow us on Instagram at Televisionary Podcast, and don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen. Bye!